Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the European Student Think Tank podcast. My name is Victoria. And this is Florentin. Today, we are joined by Manuel and Giuseppe, writers at EST, to discuss the impact of the sanctions against Russia on EU citizens. So hello, guys. Nice to have you here. Would you like to briefly introduce yourself first? Hello, everyone. I'm Giuseppe Perasotti, a master's graduate in international trade and managing editor for security, defense and economics team at the EST. It's nice to be here. Hello, I'm Manuel Torres Lajo. I'm an economist and master of science in consumer affairs and a writer here at the European Student Think Tank. It's nice to be back here. To get things started, give us an introduction of today's topic. Recently, there has been a lot of focus on the sanctions being imposed in the context of the war in Ukraine. However, let's frame it a bit better. What are those sanctions and what do they mean in the current scenario? So, as you already mentioned, today we are going to delve a little deeper into the international sanctions that have been imposed on Russia following the full-scale invasion Ukraine suffered in recent weeks. We are going to address some of the main questions related to the economic effects of these measures, what European and Russian citizens should expect, and what's in for policymakers and diplomats moving forward. So, to give a proper context, international sanctions currently active towards Russia can be traced back to 2014, the year in which the annexation of Crimea took place. These sanctions were relatively small, though, and hardly to Russia's interest in a meaningful way. Of course, the situation in Ukraine escalated massively at the end of February 2022, pushing the EU and other countries like the US, the UK, South Korea, Japan and Singapore, among others, to come together and apply a harsher and unprecedented set of measures. These, let's say, penalties are of different nature since they are covering economic, financial and diplomatic aspects. However, it's safe to say that most of these actions have been taken due to their overall economic effects, making this the most important segment researchers and politicians are focusing on right now. More specifically, we are talking about limited access to the biggest capital markets for the most important Russian banks and multinational companies, in addition to the freezing of the Russian central bank's assets. Then we have import-export trade control over key sectors like high-tech chip making, aircraft and oil refinery, on top of tech companies cutting ties with Russia, which can be considered a sort of second-party sanction. There are also the hundreds of ad personam asset freezes and travel bans, so targeting directly some relevant individuals, like the most influential members of the Russian state Duma, the country's oligarchs, most of Putin's inner circle and even the president himself and his ADs. Another huge move is the exclusion of many Russian banks from the SWIFT international banking system, which is expected to yield considerable effects. Taking a little dive into the instrumental role of these measures, what is the outcome that the EU and other countries are trying to achieve by imposing sanctions? Among the greatest counter-arguments of sanctions in general is the obvious fact that the people are the first ones being damaged, while rulers and wealthy people never suffer the full blow of these decisions. So, are sanctions really hurting decision-makers and the people in power? The measures are designed to exercise economic pressure on Russia. As Giuseppe mentioned, these sanctions differ from those Russia has had to deal with since 2014 in their harshness and the fact that they target the core of the Russian economy and the oligarchs that have close ties to the Kremlin. The idea is to isolate Russia from the rest of the world in a way that it wouldn't be sustainable for them to keep up with in the long run. 
essentially trying to strangle their economy, forcing the shutdown of the invasion as it becomes unsustainable. For instance, some days ago, Russia barely avoided falling into default, which was a high probability according to credit rating agencies because of the Russian incapacity to pay their international debts as a result of the frozen reserves. And as from the oligarchs, the EU countries are seizing their access, including yachts, villas, and even football clubs, as well as preventing them from doing business in the EU. It's difficult to get a real sense of how effective sanctions can be in deterring further violence and the continuation of the war in Ukraine. But it's undeniable that Russian consumers are already feeling the short-term effect of these sanctions. For example, there is little to no cash available at most ATMs in Russia. Aeroflot has halted all their international flights. Major European retailers and consumer goods companies like IKEA, Inditex, H&M, and Adidas have either suspended or terminated their business operations in Russia, and the rubble is an, at an all-time low compared to the euro, just to name a few examples. Adding to this, uh, as we mentioned before, these moves are unprecedented, and moving forward, we are going to see the full scale of the economic effects of these sanctions, which are actually hard to predict as of now. According to the IMF, pre-war GDP projections for Russia in 2022 were hovering around 2.7% increase. However, considering the war as a whole and all the sanctions imposed, JP Morgan predicts that Russia's GDP will go down by around 7%, while Fitch says that it will go down by at least 5%. This change is massive and should give a good estimate about how impactful this whole situation has been for the Russian economy. In the long term, Russia will be suffering from decreased trust and confidence in the Russian market from foreign investors. We are witnessing a mass exodus of foreign companies which will probably think twice before getting back into Russian soil in the future. The Russian ability to leverage fossil fuel exports towards Europe will also take a hit, as the EU has been looking for alternatives to become less reliant on Russian natural gas and oil, whether it is by strengthening partnership with other oil and gas suppliers or enhancing investments and development in the field of renewables. Russia could probably see itself isolated from the Western sphere, without being able to rely on European and American manufacturing and technology as they did up until today. Yes, we can clearly see that these sanctions are having a tough impact inside of Russia. But that's not where they're limited to. Repercussions are also experienced within European countries with prices skyrocketing in many areas such as fuel, gas and electricity. Unfortunately, we can expect this phenomenon to be on the rise for other sectors as well. How is this situation likely to evolve? Well, it's quite hard to make an exact forecast given the unpredictability of the invasion and the future measures that might be taken. But it's clear that we need to brace for hard times with high inflation and little to no economic growth, which is called stagflation and hasn't happened since the old crisis in the 1970s. As you mentioned, gas and energy more broadly is the most critical aspect as it applies transversely to all economic sectors. That is why EU sanctions were carefully tailored to avoid hitting the energy sector too hard, also because of its dependency on Russian gas. As of 2021, the EU as a bloc imports around 40% of their gas from Russia, according to official data, with states like Finland reaching even 94%, but also almost 50% for Germany and 46% for Italy which are two of the biggest EU economies. So that's quite a lot. 
Despite this speculation and uncertainty regarding further sanctions from the EU or even a possible Russian retaliation have driven prices of oil and gas up. In the last few days, for instance, we have seen fuel prices in gas stations across Europe go up to stratospheric levels, almost two euros per liter in Spain, more than that in Germany and Italy, and even in Eastern Europe, where prices are usually lower than the West, were also rising steadily, reaching around one euro and a half, one euro fifty. A similar scenario can be seen in electricity prices and heating costs. Due to energy's importance to the economy, it's likely that increases in price will eventually be transferred to final consumers, adding to inflation. But a sector that is also going to be massively impacted is the food one. Ukraine and Russia are in fact considered Europe's granary, and between July and November 2021, they accounted for around 30% of all cereal imports and for at least 22% of oil seeds imports. So if two of the main exporters of staple products such as cereals and oil seeds are not producing or exporting due to war, then that's a recipe for even higher inflation. Because cereals are not only important for human consumption, but also animal. That would impact dairy and meat products as well, rising the prices of those items too as a result. The situation is more critical for net importing countries in, within the EU, such as Spain, Italy and the Netherlands. But don't worry, pasta is safe for now as it uses durum wet, which in Italy doesn't import much from Ukraine or Russia. However, its price can certainly increase as a result of the general scarcity of supply of all types of wet in international markets. Well, that's some relief, at least for our Italian listeners. So far, we have talked about the economic effects that we are most likely going to witness. But how are sanctions going to reflect on the geopolitical scene? Measures of this magnitude are bound to impact relations between Russia and the EU. So what would that look like? Well, uh, of course, the compact international response to the invasion of Ukraine can already give us lots of information regarding the future evolution of geopolitics in the region. We have a deepening divide between the liberal West, as it likes to call itself, and Russia, countering the fact that in the past 20 years or so, the gaps between these two worlds seem to have narrowed a little bit at least. Sanctions imposed to coerce Russia into considering an early retreat might make the country more hostile towards foreign powers, damaging the case of work on the multilateral stage. At the same time, Russia's recent actions, and not just the invasion, but also the belligerent approach to diplomacy and the antagonistic position towards the West in general, shows how this country cannot be fully trusted, meaning that international parties will have a hard time signing future deals. Don't get me wrong, it's going to happen, but it's going to take some time before Russian politicians will be trusted again, and all in all, the effects are going to be long-lasting. Then, there are wide-ranging debates about how much will the West be at fault for allowing the escalation of the Russian attack, Realist exponents like John Mearsheimer, for example, seem to think that NATO's accountability should be held relatively high. However, regardless of what one thinks about who's more responsible, we can catch a glimpse of a future geopolitical layout in which Europe and NATO seem to be standing even closer, especially looking at non-members like Sweden and Finland who declare they could be willing to join the organization. Then we have big players like China and India, who are not willing to take proper sides, staying open to grasp the best opportunities for themselves. One such possibility will be to act as new channels in which it will be possible to funnel Russian resources in order to substitute Western imports and exports, reducing the effectiveness of the economic sanctions. China could start to push Russia into using its currency, the renminbi, even more. 
The possibilities are multifarious and depending on what's going on to happen, we could see a new multilateral order defined by a newly established set of alliances. Now let's try to draw a comprehensive picture of all that we discussed today. Considering that we are living in a post-pandemic world where inflation is strongly present even before this war, are those sanctions sustainable? What could the EU do to protect their customers in the short term and to reduce their dependence on Russian imports in the future? Those are good questions. I think Giuseppe described it properly. We can see a new multilateral order with new markets, so it's important for the EU to have the support of its citizens to be resilient and strengthen its positions in the world markets. But keeping up with the sanctions for a long period without taking any further measures to protect EU customers and consumers can prove counterproductive. Support can be lost because it's true the situation can be tiring after two years of a pandemic, particularly when it has clear impacts on everyday consumption. For instance, panic buying is making a comeback. We can easily state that sunflower oil is the new toilet paper, at least in Spain, after a scarcity of the product was expected to be, but more countries are following closely. And Russia is seeing part of that phenomenon too, with sugar being one of the most impacted goods. Also, the soaring prices of gas and oil are leading politicians to recommend lowering heating temperatures or shutting down them completely immediately after the winter ends, like in Florence, in both cases to save gas and therefore money. Truckers' strikes are also happening in parts of Europe, particularly in France and Spain, demanding subsidies to oil in order to offset the effects of higher prices. In Spain, the strike has been going on for a week, more or less, and it has been used by populist parties in an attempt to gain some political advantages, a situation that, we have to warn, can also happen in other EU countries. Therefore, protecting customers must be a priority for European states to mitigate the effects on consumers' well-being. Some states have already taken measures, like tax reductions on fuel in Italy, a measure that is also being discussed in Germany. Spain and Portugal are proposing an EU-wide cap on electricity prices, along with one for gas imports, which is also supported by Italy and Greece. And for the case of cereal imports, some states such as Spain have requested the EU to allow imports from alternative suppliers, as they might help reduce uncertainty and pave the way for long-term opportunities to reduce dependency from Russia. Gas imports are harder to replace on short notice, as multi-year contracts have already been signed, and transport is not as easy with infrastructure needing to be built or adapted sometimes, or new deals renegotiated, keeping in mind production and supply capacity. But in the long term, there are two options. Either building new infrastructure, like Germany, which has already stated its intention to build terminals for imports of liquefied natural gas, known as LNG, particularly from Qatar, or the pipeline construction suggested by Spain to allow Algerian gas to be transported into the north of Europe. The other option, as suggested by the International Energy Association, is to go all in for green energy sources and invest heavily into expanding the capacity of, for example, solar wind energy. That could be an interesting option, not only to get locally produced and cheaper energy, but also achieve cleaner and sustainable targets in the quest for climate targets and net zero emissions. That's at least a bright side in an otherwise complicated economic and political scenario. Yeah, Manuel just explained the situation very well. 
When the situation may appear bleak and difficult, EU countries can still manage to make use of their own resources to turn the tides and get something positive out of this awful situation. This is a good opportunity to become more independent, especially after we saw how vulnerable European markets can get in extreme conditions such as during the pandemic. And we can also quicken the currently ongoing process of green transformation. And at the same time, we can demonstrate how the European Union can act cohesively as one unique global player. Of course, without losing focus on what's going on in Ukraine, since this crisis appears to be still far from over. Giuseppe Manuel, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you all. This is all for today's episode. If you want to see more of our content, check out the EST website. Yes, thank you for listening. To let us know about something you would like to hear on this podcast, drop us an email at podcast at See you next week.